Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. The Crisis Next Door. A weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world. With host Jason Brooks. Welcome to The Crisis Next Door. I'm your host, Jason Brooks. Today, we are taking a look at Russia, and we are joined by Dr. Donald Jensen from the Center for European Policy Analysis, who also teaches Russian national security at Johns Hopkins. And Dr. Jensen is a former U.S. diplomat who was involved in the Strategic Arms Reduction Treaty signed between the U.S. and the Soviet Union in 91 and was part of the first 10-person U.S. team that inspected Soviet missiles under the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty in 1988. Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for joining us today. How times have changed in the 27 years since the START Treaty? Seems like the Russian bear is much more alive these days under Vladimir Putin. Uh, They certainly have, certainly have. And I have to admit, I get nostalgic for those days sometimes when uh, everybody in the West hoped for and I think expected Russia to be on its way to being a a pluralistic free economy democracy with... uh, perhaps a close association with the Western security structures like uh, NATO in particular, but also the European Union, as it eventually became. It didn't turn out that way, and why it didn't is a subject for or, or argument by a lot of people both here and elsewhere, most especially in Moscow, with no, no real consensus. Moscow's reach has certainly gone all around the world over just the past several years, in particular in Syria, where it's helped the Assad regime stay in power. Uh, Do you think that Putin has achieved what he's wanted in Syria? Does he plan to be a longtime player in the Middle East, perhaps picking up the slack from the United States? Uh, I think if you asked him, he would say they're very satisfied with what what they've done. They've propped up the regime through, I think, a combination of uh, bumbling and bad policy, uh, two American presidents have allowed that to happen. And I think it's highly regrettable because the results have been uh, quite apparent, which is that Russia is now a major player in the Middle East, and it wasn't for 20 years. It was during the Soviet period, but, but now it is again. And I think uh, the reason that that is the case is a complicated one, as I said, uh, through differences of opinion, reading the situation. But I think it's the U.S. is to a significant extent to blame for that. Does it matter? Well, of course it matters, because Russia sees uh, the war against terror and the Middle East quite differently than the United States, no matter what the White House says. And so uh, the fact that Russia has a foothold there, that the U.S. has apparently acquiesced to it, is, I think, in the long term, not a good thing for the United States' interests in the region. Russia seems to be trying to balance itself between Israel and Iran. And, of course, Israel and Iran have been going at it like they've never gone at it before over Syria. Is it possible for Russia to maintain that balance? Is there a possible problem for Russia laying in that relationship? Uh, I'm glad you brought that up. I think the, the, the tilt toward Israel in the past week or two in particular has been very, very interesting. 
the Russians and the Iranians have worked hand in glove with Assad in Syria, as you know. And I think there will come a point relatively soon where the Iranians are going to be very, very upset, if they're not already, about what Russia is doing there. But in Syria, I think the alliance, shaky as it might be, is going to hold for a while because they both have strategic goals that are similar, which is to the most important of which is to uh, prop up the, the Assad regime. Uh, you mentioned a minute ago about Russia's assertiveness overseas. I would not uh, omit Ukraine, which in many ways is a much more serious violation of international law and a much more serious uh, test by Moscow of Western willingness to respond to its ambitions. Let's get right to Ukraine. Obviously, sure. Syria is the one that gets all the headlines, the, the ongoing war. A lot of people have simply forgotten that there's still a war going on in Ukraine, in the Donbass. You've got at least 10,000 dead since that conflict started a few years ago. Uh, there's There are always these ceasefires that are put into effect. It seems like they rarely work. The fighting is going on daily. What's Putin's endgame here? Putin's endgame has changed in many ways over the past four years. But in the end, it remains the same. He does not think Ukraine is a separate country. He does not want Ukraine integrated into the West, either in the EU or the uh, North Atlantic Treaty Organization. And he's prepared to wait the West out. And by that, I mean not prevailing militarily, although I suppose he could at great cost, because the Ukrainians have done a very good job recently defending themselves. But I think he's counting on the fact that countries like Italy and Germany are pretty relaxed or pretty uninterested in resisting uh, Russian influence there. And the sanctions come up for another renewal in Europe, in a couple of weeks, and I think a lot of Western diplomats are concerned, especially in light of the recent Italian elections, that Italy and Germany will simply roll over and not favor extending the sanctions against Russia. This situation has been made worse, I'd have to say, by the Trump administration's trade policies, as you know, a couple of other policies which have really put our relations with Europe at considerable strain. Uh, Recently, the president of France, who had just been in the United States, was in St. Petersburg with Putin. Prime Minister Merkel met Putin in, in Sochi about two weeks ago, and uh, all seem to be tilting toward Russia out of anger and resentment at what they see as U.S. undercutting European interests. And that's a real problem for the White House. I want to get back to uh, Europe's relationship with Putin in a moment, but more on Ukraine. It almost seems like the battlefield is reminiscent of the Western Front in World War One. Very static, not a lot of movement. Uh, there doesn't seem to be either advantage for either side. Is that something that you see Putin trying to change in the future, or is he fine with Ukraine just remaining instable and that he doesn't necessarily need to bring it back within Russia's grasp? I think, uh, an excellent question, by the way, I think the comparison with World War One is apt only to a point. Because in the World War One, they were offensive by both sides, and that's not the case here. And here, it's now more or less a stalemate, with usually, in fact, almost always Russian ceasefire violations probing the Ukrainian defenses. But what's happened in the past three years is that Russia, once dominant on the battlefield, has now been mired in really a, a, a I won't say a status quo, but the Ukrainians have gotten to the point where they can resist Russia's advances. And while they would give way, they would impose such a cost on the Russian military that, it, that Putin is unlikely to want to do that right now. However, uh, Ukraine can be put back in the Russian orbit by simply diplomatic 
and clever uh, moves by Moscow. I think that's what Putin's banking on. He doesn't have to conquer on the battlefield. In fact, the cost to Russia's army would be very high. So he's counting on the Germans, the Italians, the Trump perhaps not being as interested in Ukraine as in other issues. And that's what he's banking on. And, and we'll have to see if it works. But Ukraine so far, while uh, a very corrupt country in many regards in the elite, is in many ways at the grassroots level, the younger generation, very interested in going to the West. And whatever the bumps along the way, and I think they will be significant, but whatever the bumps along the way, I think a generation from now, Ukraine is going to be much closer to Europe and the United States uh, than Russia wants. And so it's going to be a continuing problem. But for now, I think Putin just wants to wait out the West, hoping the alliance will crack and he can in, get influence in, over Kiev in ways that uh, have not been successful so far. Definitely does not seem like there's as much concern about Russia in Germany, Italy, or France as there is in, say, Poland or the Baltic nations. Uh, how concerned should Poland or the Baltics be about Russia, especially after what happened in Ukraine, the Crimea? Well, they should be. Uh, first of all, you make an excellent point again, which is Europe is not Europe. The Balts, Poland in particular, are very, very anti-Russian and actually are very, very pro-Trump uh, because they see the upgrading of the NATO commitment to that region, beginning with last summer in the Warsaw Summit, as something to be welcomed. And so the NATO presence, which has now rotated troops in that, in that region, which I mean the Balts and Poland, very substantial, very robust, and almost certain to deter Putin from moving. But there's a continuing, as they say, non-kinetic, forgive the word, campaign by Russia through the media, through subversion, through other means to uh, undermine Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania in particular, to establish uh, contacts with the so-called populist fronts in Europe, in Italy, in Poland, in Germany, in Denmark, and even in France, which are relatively sympathetic to Putin, as we saw in their recent Italian elections. But the rest of Europe is really to be divided in a number of ways, with the Germans probably the weakest link for a variety of historical and economic reasons. But the British, in particular, most recently, after the Skripal poisoning, have become much tougher, and they're much closer to the U.S. position. And the U.S. position, I would say, in practice, Trump rhetoric aside, has been really tougher than Obama's in many ways. And so the U.S. is seen by Moscow as dominated by a president who sort of likes Putin or wants to talk to Putin, and a, they call it the deep state, which is the traditional foreign policy machinery here, which is really, really now harshly anti-Kremlin. And that's when you see the sanctions and all that kind of thing. Uh, it's been a very disheartening thing for the Russians because they expected much more that they would like out of Trump, and so far it hasn't really happened. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about Russia's global reawakening with Dr. Donald Jensen from the Center for European Policy Analysis. There's a recent RAND study that finds a substantial decline in NATO ground forces since the end of the Cold War, shifting away from high-intensity conventional combat, while Russia has reversed the declines of the 90s and 2000s and is now bringing on more modern systems to its forces. And the highest density of those forces is on the... Uh, border of the Baltic nations of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, how important are those ethnic Russian populations in especially Estonia and Latvia for Russia? And is there any hope for Moscow that they will be bringing the Baltics back within their sphere? I 
glad you asked. I'm just back from Tallinn and Vilnius uh, two weeks ago, and yeah, we talked about that a lot. First of all, on the issue of military reform, it's there's no question that NATO has an overwhelming strength against Russia if you look at the situation one-on-one. The Russian military is considerably reformed, but so is NATO. And you can go along by some of the measures we did during the Cold War. NATO is much more high-tech. NATO has good troops rotating in and out of the region. And I think that's going to be enough to deter, deter the Russians. NATO's problems are other things like political support for opposing Russia, the Russians, or even basic things like infrastructure in Europe, where it's still difficult to move troops rapidly to the Baltic, say from France or Britain, because railroad gauges are not uniform still after all these years. So the Russian military is reformed, but not so much that we should expect the kind of ground forces we might have thought possible during the Cold War. But in terms of a localized preponderance of force, the Russians could certainly do that, as we saw in 2014. They did that in Ukraine with some success for a number of months. The second part of your question is actually extremely interesting, which is to say, to what, where, what are the loyalties of the Russian ethnic groups in the Baltic? And as near as people can tell, they are relatively happy with their quality of life in, say, Tallinn or in Vilnius, but they still, to some extent, are, are sympathetic to the Russian narrative about Putin and Russian being back and trying to remedy the, the victimization of Russia during the 1990s. Do you think there's a fear among people in, say, Lithuania, Estonia, Latvia, or Poland that uh, Article 5 of NATO would not necessarily be invoked if Russia invaded? Is there any worry that NATO would not come to their aid if this happened? Uh, I don't think... Uh, first of all, Article 5 is a little bit ambiguous, so the re- response from the West is not... Uh, uh, necessarily dictated to be militarily, militarily uh, uh, that kind of a response. But I think the Russians are believe or believe enough that NATO would respond in some way as to dissuade a military operation. So what they've tried to do instead is to go below the threshold of kinetic warfare, to subvert in other ways. And I think in many ways it's, it's, it holds the possibility for a more effective strategy for what Moscow wants. Moscow doesn't really want a military conflict. It just wants to threaten it to know that that's a possibility. And I have no, I have no doubt that at the moment they are not interested in provoking NATO. But I think they can think they can get what they want in other ways. I mean, Moscow's. It's not like the Cold War when we were kids. Moscow's not out to sell an alternative ideology at that time, Marxism. Moscow's out to cause trouble and chaos, and it's enough for them to undermine the U.S. elections or to have parties in Italy that they support who are against the European Union. That's enough for them to do that because that's what they want. They want the U.S. out of Europe. They want to be a great power. And in their calculation, I would argue, it's enough to create chaos, and they don't have to measure match up to the West or the NATO military, soldier for soldier or tank by tank. They don't have to do that. And in that sense, they can play a strategically weaker hand effectively because Moscow is more flexible, Moscow is able to take advantage of Western openness in our societies. And they do that, and that's why we see all the fear over Western information warfare and those kinds of things we've seen, not only here, but in Britain and in, in France and in Germany and elsewhere. Is it possible that Russia might be reaching too far right now with its multi-level strategy of foreign policy as Putin tries to reclaim some of the Soviet Union's past cachet? Are, are there lessons to be learned 
from the not-too-distant past for Russia. Uh, there are lessons to be learned, and one of the, uh, several important ones, one of which is that the oil price remains a key driver of the Russian economy and Russian behavior. The oil price decline you might have read in the late 1980s, in fact, I had to read about it, <laughs> in the 1980s led to some of the crisis in the Soviet Union. So Russia's behavior, economic uh, output is heavily dependent on the price of oil, which went way down a few years ago, forcing cutbacks in Russian social services, and thus endangering perhaps the support for Putin. And now the price has gone back up, so things look a little bit better, but it's so corrupt and inefficient, I think no economist I know of expects to turn around by the Russians anytime soon. But getting back to the first part of your question, if Russia's game plan is to undermine the West through the the, the strategic use of chaos, if we could put it that way, it doesn't need to have the kind of extensive resources that the Russian, the Soviet Union claimed during the Cold War. You can put attention on the Baltic, you can switch to undermining the U.S. elections, you can switch to a lot of things. You don't have to press forward on all fronts all the time. And in the Cold War, I think you saw much more of an across-the-board challenge to the United States, whether it was in Europe or whether it was in... Uh, in uh, 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 the Middle East or Angola or Cuba, wherever it might be. Uh, the China factor also becomes a factor in a lot of these calculations. And while a lot of people think Russia and China are going to end up allies, I don't see that happening except selectively on particular issues. And uh, whatever cooperation they do have, it's not unlike Iran. Uh, whatever cooperation the Russians and Chinese do have, there are reasons for both countries to be sort of wary of each other. And so that's going to mean that the cooperation is likely to be very limited. Putin obviously has greater control over the political machinery in Russia, but could the tables be turned on Russia regarding the strategic use of chaos? Could these very uh, tools that Russia is using against Europe and the U.S., could they be turned on Russia effectively as well? Uh, exactly, exactly. I wrote in an article in March in the American Interest, perhaps you've seen it, about the strategic use of chaos by the Kremlin. And you're absolutely right. It could very well backfire. And you remember our grandparents' generation after the Cold War, they used to re listen or hear read about Radio for Europe and the Voice of America, which was broadcasting information about U.S. democracy into the Soviet Empire, which was multi-ethnic, multinational. And while the Russians tried to expand their influence outward in the West during the Cold War, the backfiring of this kind of thing actually ha happened and I think helped unravel the Soviet Empire. So yes, and uh, one of the things you see in Russian behavior now is a Kremlin which at home is very status quo oriented and wants to maintain its control and perhaps even strengthen it, particularly over the Internet. But it wants to close those borders to outside influences, even as outside Russia, they're not status quo at all. They're very much interested, as we've talked about, in, in, in so, sowing tr causing trouble and sowing chaos. So Putin is straddling to, 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 to this to some extent. And so when you look at the Ukraine war, what you've seen for several years now, is you've seen the, re the attempted return of a lot of fighters from Syria to Russia or to Chechnya or into Central Asia. And these people are trained, often Islamic fighters. And Putin doesn't want them back. He will f support them as long as they're fighting in the Donbass. But he doesn't want them back. And Russia w watches very carefully, to the extent that you can control it, 
the the backfiring of a foreign influence back along the back into Russia, because that would undermine ultimately the regime. And so for Putin, it's very important to keep that poll rating at 80 percent and to keep uh, any chance of that being challenged or that going down uh, to be at a minimal level. You might remember Boris Yeltsin went from overwhelmingly favorite in the 90s among Russians to 5% by the end of the decade, partly because of the perception he was incompetent or a drunk or whatever it might, or just ineffective. So power in Russia is, is very, very personalized. And when you see Putin's high poll rating or you see the political process going on, I think it's a mistake if you forget that it works differently there than it does here. And a poll rating in Moscow or in Petersburg is a bit different than the poll rating of a U.S. president here. And it's easy to forget that because we tend to mirror image our own system in them. And I'm sure that the reverse is also also true. Ah, the good old days of Boris Yeltsin when things were <laughs> so much calmer. It's been a while. <laughs> we do miss those times. Uh, Dr. Jensen, thank you so much for joining us here today on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 